a warm summer day in 1915, the SS Philadelphia slowed as it finally reached its port in Boston Harbor. On board was a woman of 35, with short dark hair and a narrow frame. She stared in awe at the city, which burst with energy before her, so different from the city she had left 29 years earlier. The woman would later write, I knew nothing of what the future held, but intuitively believed I was ordained to devote my life to this work, and at any personal cost, followed my destiny that was waiting for me in America. The ship under her feet had been rehabilitated a decade earlier after sinking in a bad storm. Had she known, the woman would have empathized with the ship, having a heart for the wounded. She would walk off the ship into Boston Harbor, and one year later was at the front lines of the polio epidemic. Two years after that, the woman and the ship would both find themselves in World War I. Her name was Mary McMillan. Some fondly called her Molly, and some would later call her the mother of physical therapy. You're listening to Masters in Motion, a limited edition podcast about physical therapy leaders and their stories so that we can apply those same lessons to our own lives and the challenges that lie ahead. Hey guys. So this podcast is different from other podcasts on the show. Today, the day this podcast is being released, is Founders Day. It's the 100th anniversary of the day that the American Physical Therapy Association was founded. In honor of that, we've decided to do something special. As our listeners know, our podcast focuses on stories of some of the most inspiring figures in physical therapy. Well, there's no more inspiring story than that of the first physical therapist in the U.S. and the first president of the association, Mary McMillan. If you like the episode, please consider telling other physical therapists about it or leaving a review so that Mary's story can stay alive. And it is an amazing one. Enjoy. In her time, Mary McMillan was a giant. By the end of her life, Mary had served in two world wars, taught at numerous colleges and universities, almost single-handedly started a professional association, became the first international physical therapist, and spent three years in an internment camp while teaching abroad. Today, few have heard her name. If you happen upon a description of Mary, it is likely fleeting. If you're lucky enough to find her photograph, it almost certainly will depict Mary in a reconstruction aid uniform. In it, she glances back over her shoulder at something in the distance, her face barely discernible amid the black cloak that envelops her. There are likely two reasons for Mary's relative anonymity today. For one, she was a woman. In her time, medicine was dominated by men. 
Mary returned to the United States just a few decades after Elizabeth Blackwell became the first woman to earn an MD degree from Geneva Medical College. Commenting on the challenges of women in medicine, Blackwell said, A blank wall of social and professional antagonism faces the woman physician that forms a situation of singular and painful loneliness, leaving her without support, respect, or professional counsel. Elizabeth Blackwell's sense of empathy and sensitivity to human suffering, now a common expectation of all healthcare providers, was belittled as feminine in her time. The perception of women at her time juxtaposed with Mary's accomplishments occurs on two specific pages of her diary. On one page, there's a photograph of a newspaper clipping. In it, the nurses of Walter Reed Hospital, where Mary worked as a chief of reconstruction aides, are described as the prettiest corpse of nurses to be found anywhere. These 45 girls in their blue uniforms are believed by some to be the prettiest girls at Walter Reed. On another page is a telegram to Mary from the Surgeon General of the United States. The second reason for Mary McMillan's relative historical absence may have to do with the nature of her profession. Reconstruction aides were just that, aides. They were not given any particular prominence in the early years and had to work hard to prove their value. After her swearing in as the first Reconstruction aide in the United States Army, in February of 1918, Mary wandered the halls handing out pamphlets like an, quote, encyclopedia salesman. Many physicians in the hospital were wary of Mary and what they perceived to be physical therapy's intrusion into the medical profession. Some physicians even warned their patients not to trust her. The first physical therapist in the Army, Mary initially had no clinical space and treated patients in hallways and on the hospital porch. Nevertheless, Mary's persistence, cheerful nature, and skillful hands slowly began to earn her recognition. As Elizabeth Blackwell famously said, It is not easy to be a pioneer, but oh, is it fascinating. The largely dismissive attitude toward the early Reconstruction aides was not held by all physicians. It was a small group of physicians, in fact, who were key to the early growth of physical therapy. Oddly, early Reconstruction aides often referred to each other by both their name and the name of the physician who trained them. In Mary's case, she had spent over a decade in Liverpool training under Sir Robert Jones, a pioneer in orthopedic surgery and the rehabilitation of fractures. Today, Jones is sometimes referred to as the father of modern orthopedics. After hearing of the discovery of x-rays in 1895, Jones promptly obtained a radiographic apparatus the following year, which he integrated into his practice. He soon published an article on its use to discover a bullet in a young man's wrist in the Lancet. In 1902, Jones injured his own foot while dancing and again used radiography to detect his own fracture, one of the fifth metatarsal. This fracture would become known as the Jones fracture after he published a case series of six patients him being the first. 
Jones was also a strong believer in the benefits of rehabilitation and in the skills of his pupil, Mary McMillan. Mary expected to find a similar relationship in the United States. After much effort, she would find just such an ally in Dr. Frank B. Granger. Frank B. Granger was a Harvard Medical School graduate who was appointed as the head of the Physical Reconstruction Department at Walter Reed. Granger was described by Mary McMillan as the biggest advocate of the work we were doing. He was conservative in manner, yet progressive in spirit. Although he was initially somewhat skeptical of physical therapy, Granger eventually became relentless in his lobbying for the new profession. Convinced that the reconstruction aids were essential to the country's war recovery, Granger persuaded the Surgeon General to expand the fledgling program. Soon, the country had a national division of physical reconstruction and 40 new hospitals across the nation. With this rapid growth, Mary identified a glaring need for more AIDS. Around the same time, the Surgeon General hastily met with educators to address the shortage. Ultimately, it was decided that six physical education schools would begin emergency physical therapy training programs. In 1918, Mary requested permission to leave Walter Reed to begin the process of training new aides at Reed College, which Dr. Granger begrudgingly approved. Decades later, Granger would be remembered as one of the early physical therapy physicians who would later organize and adopt the name Physiatrists. Reed College lies just outside the heart of Portland, between two lakes, Crystal Springs Lake and Reed Lake. A quiet forest of trees encircles the campus buildings, and sprawling grass lawns connect the Tudor Gothic buildings. It is one of the places where natural beauty meets a solemn spirit, and this must have been the case as Mary McMillan arrived in the summer of 1918, the country still at war. Reed College was less than 20 years old, and its president had become concerned with the size of its new physical therapy training program, which had quickly become the largest in the country. There were 208 women from 31 states, most of them already having college degrees. Mary assumed the position of director and quickly developed the school's curriculum, which included courses in anatomy with cadaver dissection, massage, exercise, and psychology, among others. The program was only nine months out of necessity. Hospitals were desperate for aides to treat their injured soldiers. Mary didn't stay long. She was quickly called to visit other schools across the country and assist in establishing their physical therapy programs. Today, it's difficult to imagine a 38-year-old traveling the country under direction from the Surgeon General and various college presidents. But that is precisely what Mary did. Her travels only lasted a short time. The armistice was signed on November 11, 1918, signaling the end of the First World War.
and Mary was soon called back to Walter Reed. The Congress of American Physicians and Surgeons met in June 1919 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, to discuss the topic of reconstruction. Dr. Harvey Cushing, a prominent neurosurgeon known for describing Cushing's disease, took the stage to praise the work of reconstruction aids. This has come to the minds of all. This new profession of women is as important as the nursing profession and may arise through the invaluable services of the reconstruction aides. Listening in the audience was Mary McMillan. She left the conference feeling inspired and began work on a new textbook. At Walter Reed, she assumed the title of Head of Reconstruction Aids in the medical department and spent half of her day in the Surgeon General's office addressing the problems of staffing the new department. Around this time, Mary also began lecturing in orthopedic surgeons' classes, teaching protocols to assist with post-surgical patients. She also continued to travel to assist in the development of new programs, including one at Mayo Clinic. As the war ended, there was the matter of what to do with this new profession. Physical therapy physicians, having created reconstruction aids, now decided that their names should change from aids to physical therapists in order to indicate that they operated at a technician level and only under the physician's direction. It's interesting to reflect on how inextricable those two professions were in the early years. Essentially, physical therapy physicians evaluated patients and determined rehabilitation needs, while physical therapists carried out most of the procedural tasks. While physical therapy physicians praised physical therapists in private and occasionally in public, many physicians continued to remain dubious of their ability to help patients. And accounts of physicians publicly praising physical therapists from those years are rare. In fact, the post-war era of rehabilitative medicine is seldom discussed. In a 1964 article in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Charles D. Bonner recalled that after World War I, there was a hiatus in the advancement of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Many physicians were discouraged from entering the field because their colleagues, seeking glamour, looked askance at its simplicity. The American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation begins their historical account of physiatry in 1929, over a decade after the last so-called physical therapy physicians were practicing. The glaring omission of a decade of rapid professional growth shines a light on the possible reasons for the cloak of darkness that today obscures Mary McMillan, another early physical therapist. It was the efforts of these early physical therapists traveling the country to expand emergency physical therapy departments, treating patients in hospital hallways, lecturing to classes of orthopedic surgeons, persuading skeptical physicians to use their services, this substantially contributed to the rapid growth of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Without these pioneering and imperturbable women, it's possible that neither physical therapy nor physiatry may exist as they do today. On January 15, 1921, 
a meeting of 30 aides and five physicians was held at Keene's Chop House in New York City to discuss a national association for physical therapy. Keene's Chop House was an old restaurant, even in those days, and exuded masculinity. Oil paintings hung prominently on its dark walls and smoke hung in the air. It even had a pipe club with members including Theodore Roosevelt and Babe Ruth. Addressing the choice in venue, Mary would later say, It was ironic our women's organization chose this historic place to meet because only men were allowed to gather and eat there up until 1905. Lily Langtree, sometimes called the Jersey Lily, was a British-American socialite and actress who sued the restaurant for refusing female entrance and won. As a result, a sign was hung near the entryway to welcome women patrons, which perhaps provided fleeting inspiration to the women who met that January evening to discuss carving out their new place in healthcare. Eventually, Mary McMillan would establish the American Women's Physical Therapeutics Association and was elected its first president. Frank B. Granger and other male physicians would write articles in the first issue of the association's newly established journal. Establishing standards for the rapidly growing profession was of chief concern for the association, as departments began to pop up in civilian settings across the country. Mary served as the president of the association for two years, and then set about traveling the world to see how physical therapy was progressing. Far from home, an adventure would await. In 1932, Mary accepted a position as chief physiotherapist at Piping Medical College in Piping, China. It is there she remained until nine years later, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and dragged the United States into the Second World War. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Mary's frantic efforts to return home were too late, and she was in Manila when it was captured by the Japanese. She was placed in an internment camp with other Americans and Europeans, where she remained for three long years. A camp hospital was established, and Mary quickly took up space to perform physical therapy on desperate prisoners. 
Her optimism, cheerfulness, and skillful work were later recalled fondly by others in the camp. As one fellow prisoner put it, quote, aching backs and arthritis from sleeping on cold cement, pulled muscles, painful feet, infected bug bites and rashes, all manner of aches and pains were brought in. Every day, people went away feeling better after a half hour with Molly, unquote. After three years, Mary McMillan's time in internment would come to an end. She would look back on the physical therapy she performed during those dark days as her swan song. Bright day in late 1943, the M.S. Gripsum coasted into New York Harbor. The M.S. Gripsum was the first of its kind, being propelled by a diesel-powered motor rather than a steamship and paddle wheel. It carried very precious cargo, picked up on its long journey from Japan and around the Horn of Africa. Among her cargo, was a kindred pioneer spirit. One can only imagine the thoughts that went through Mary McMillan's head as she once again set eyes on the United States. This time, she was 28 years older, her body still in pain from the numerous infections and neuritis that marked the years of her internment. Nevertheless, to Mary, the future still seemed bright. The profession established in part by Mary decades earlier had flourished since her leaving. She was also happy to see the new profession of physiatry, whose foundation was set by the very physicians who had guided Mary's efforts years earlier. Other medical specialties would take notice of physical therapy's value, albeit slowly. Four years after Mary's return from internment, Dr. George Morris Pearsall, one of the founders of the American College of Physicians, would pen an article entitled The Value of Physical Therapy in Internal Medicine, arguing that internists' reluctance to offer physical therapy treatments to the care of their patients was, quote, in part due to a lack of understanding of what constitutes physical therapy. The period of rapid growth seen after World War II seemingly never stopped. Physical therapy and physical medicine have undergone massive change in the 100 years since the establishment of the Women's Physical Therapeutic Association. However, it could be argued that Dr. Pearsall's words are still true today. The worldwide need for rehabilitation remains substantial, while epidemics of overmedicalization and obesity encumber the country. Physical therapy remains well-suited to meet those modern challenges, yet its utilization remains low. It's as if Mary McMillan and her profession were both shrouded in a cloak.
and the lecture that she would give to the American Physical Therapy Association after her return from internment. Mary would say, The easy path in the lowland has nothing grand or new, but a toilsome ascent leads on to a glorious view. That is so, and there is no doubt that her place behind a cloak, the glorious view ahead, is just how she would have wanted it.